Just to let you know, we recorded this podcast on Wednesday afternoon, just before Michael Bloomberg decided to drop out of the race to be the Democratic candidate in the next presidential election. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, Super Tuesday, what is it, how did it go, and what will it mean for Donald Trump? There were, well, some alarms being set for 4.30am Wednesday to check the results of what has become known as Super Tuesday. Why has it become such an important date in the calendar ahead of the US presidential election race? The race within a race, i.e. who will be the Democratic candidate to take on Trump in November 2020, can often be a bit of a bloated mess. But Super Tuesday can also slim the race down and focus the minds and hearts of Democrats across America. So we're going to go right back to basics on The Explainer today about the whole process and then bring you through all the happenings of this iteration of Super Tuesday. To do that, I'm joined by our reporter and explainer regular, Ronan Duffy, Ortiz Katrina Perry, who you'll obviously all know from the 6-1 News and from her time as Washington correspondent, and another favourite of this podcast, Larry Donnelly, law lecturer and politics guru from NUI Galway. Thank you, one and all. Larry, I'm going to start with you because we we need a glossary for today to get us through the next 30 minutes. And I'm going to start with what exactly is a caucus? Uh, a caucus is a, a means that used in American presidential elections by a small number of states. Uh, in a caucus, it's different to the, the voting experience people would be familiar with here because it's done in public. It's typically done publicly uh, in small or in large venues uh, where you announce your support for uh, a particular candidate. The process takes uh, a long bit of time, um, and, and and it's it's not closed in the sense that people have to de- typically declare their support publicly uh, for which candidate they're going to back. Uh, it's time consuming, and as we saw this year in Iowa, uh, things can go badly wrong. And I think that's why a lot of states that used to use caucuses uh, have stopped using them in recent years. So they ter- go to like a normal ballot, what we we would be more familiar with. Yes, the, a primary would be the most, by far the most common. Uh, means in American presidential primaries. Uh, and that would really, you know, involve a, an experience that most people here would be familiar with. You go into uh, a ballot box, you mark uh, your ballot paper, you hand it back to the returning officer and off you go. So some states have caucuses, some states have primaries, but they're both basically the same thing. It's just the method is different. The method is different and, and the caucus is far more complicated. And that's why uh, I think we can probably say the caucus is a dying breed. Okay, to move on to something else that'll come up a lot. What exactly, when we say a delegate, what do we mean by a delegate? Well, delegates are real people, I suppose. That's the first point. Uh, They're people who opt and apply and in some cases are elected uh, to serve as delegates to their national party convention. There are two different, uh, there are different types of delegates, I should say. There are pledge delegates uh, and there are super delegates, which listeners might be familiar with. Pledge delegates, uh, whether they exist at the the level of their district or the level of their state, they're bound to whatever candidate has won that individual district or state. Um, And some of those, uh, again, are selected by the state party, either by election or or application. Some delegates uh, go... are delegates by virtue of their holding uh, office, whether they're mayors or in Congress or state legislatures or whatever it might be. 
they they constitute three three thousand nine hundred and seventy nine uh, of the overall delegates. The other category of delegates who say this time is much less because of what happened in twenty sixteen with Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders uh, are super delegates. These are effectively party grandees who are not pledged to any individual candidate who may support whichever candidate uh, they so choose. Um, The bottom line is you need to have 1,991 delegates in order to have 50% necessary to win a convention. I think that's the kind of glossary done. So let's move to the candidates in question. So who is still on the ballot paper or who is still up um, as a candidate in the Democratic primary before Super Tuesday? Well, Joe, Joe Biden is back with a bang. Joe Biden is the former vice president uh, of the United States under Barack Obama, long-term sel- senator from the state uh, of Delaware, someone who has been a, a prominent political figure uh, in the United States for a very long time and who uh, the opinion polls, at least for some months before the voting started, uh, was the, the odds-on favorite. Uh, Bernie Sanders, he's a, a senator from Vermont, someone who describes himself as a democratic socialist, uh, uh, and although he's he's running for president as a Democrat now for the second time, uh, actually identifies as an independent uh, as he's in Congress. Um, he's built an enthusiastic army uh, of supporters, many of them young people, many Latinos, uh, people who want to change the system. He's quite radical in terms of an American political point of view. Uh, also in the race, uh, Mike Bloomberg, uh, the former uh, New York mayor and billionaire, uh, who I suppose is most notable in this cycle uh, for having spent half a billion dollars of his own money uh, on uh, television ads and on hiring staff. Uh, and for him, that's a, it's small potatoes, really, at the end of the day. And the, the continued question, I suppose, in the run-up to, to Super Tuesday was whether it would translate into votes. Um, you also have uh, Elizabeth Warren, uh, who is a senator from Massachusetts, uh, who would also be in the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, a longtime uh, law professor and consumer uh, activist, uh, she has been seeking the Democratic nomination, and she was very popular at one stage and in front of the polls uh, in the late summer of last year, uh, but has faded uh, in the run-up to Super Tuesday and really hasn't performed all that well to date. And we had a couple of big names, obviously, drop out just before um, votes were cast on Tuesday. Yeah, two two big names. Well, one, uh, Pete Buttigieg, uh, who in fairness w- went from total obscurity to uh, to being a formidable presence in the race. Uh, Pete Buttigieg is the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, which is a city about the size of Cork, uh, a very small blip on the landscape. Yet, uh, I think because he's got a compelling backstory, he's a young, gay, married man who also uh, identifies as a Christian, uh, who brought a lot of energy and enthusiasm and exuberance to the race and became uh, a real presence before uh, deciding to drop out. Indeed, uh, he ran very close to Bernie Sanders in the Iowa caucus. Uh, the other person who dropped out, or the other most notable person who also dropped out, uh, was Minnesota Senator uh, Amy Klobuchar, uh, who again would be on the more moderate wing of the party, who ran well uh, in New Hampshire, uh, but ultimately couldn't stay competitive from a fundraising point of view. Uh, it should be noted that a lot of people think that she will be on the short list to be the vice presidential candidate. If it's Joe Biden? In particular, if it's Joe Biden, but also uh, in the event that it were Bernie Sanders, I mean, Bernie Sanders having pitched well to the left, uh, it's arguable whether he would go along with this or not as anyone's guess, but it's arguable that he would want to have somebody on the more moderate end of the Democratic Party uh, as his running mate to balance that out. And a woman, of course. 
of course. <laughs> um, just you mentioned Iowa and the mess kind of in, uh, in the caucus there. Just take us back and explain that to us. Um, what happened? Uh, have we had the postmortem yet? Well, you know, what, what happened in Iowa was, as much as anything, it was a failure of technology. They used an app uh, which hadn't really been tested all that well. Uh, and so what you had was, you know, again, the typical scene of more than a thousand uh, caucus sites all over Iowa, ranging from large ones to people's living rooms, dedicated volunteers there, uh, you know, doing the job and counting the votes and doing everything they're asked to do uh, to make democracy work. Uh, and then when it came down to it, the app crashed or at least malfunctioned pretty badly uh, and they couldn't get results into party headquarters. Uh, indeed, then they tried to back up phone systems. System, uh, and that didn't work all that well either. So it took a considerable amount of time uh, for the results to be processed. And we had a bizarre dynamic where the candidates on the evening uh, didn't really know how they had done. And all of them gave kind of a quasi victory speech uh, in the absence of any real information and said, well, we're going to New Hampshire now. But I think it really showed up the flaws uh, in the caucus system. Uh, and I think the caucus system, again, just to come back to it, it takes a long time. People have to give up a lot of their time uh, to, do, to do it and to go. Uh, that means that participation rates are very low. People are busy and everything else. Uh, so, again, I think that that may have been the, the, the fatal blow to the Iowa caucus. Yeah, just you mentioned someone's house becomes, you know, the, the place where the count happens. How do you make your house be the center of the caucus? In some cases, you know, in rural parts of Iowa, you 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 become an activist within the local Democratic Party, uh, and you volunteer whether you're a precinct captain or you're chair of the local uh, Democratic committee, however it might be, and you have a suitable venue, uh, you go to it. Uh, and again, the way the Democratic Caucus in Iowa operates is that people literally go and stand in designated areas uh, as a public declaration. Uh, of their can of their support for a particular candidate, uh, you could imagine that that could get quite cozy in somebody's living room. Yeah, it's like the Stations of the Cross being done in people's houses here. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think Katrina, that's caucus primary delegate out of the way, so we're clear on all of that. And I'm going to come to you because you've lived through this process. What exactly does Super Tuesday itself involve? Well, Super Tuesday is an important day in the middle of the primary process. So what that is, it's when the parties decide who is going to represent them ultimately in the general election in that head-to-head -head contest in November for the White House. Now, on a, in a year where there's a sitting president of a particular party, so this year that would obviously be President Donald Trump, the Republican primary process, while it's still ongoing, he's not facing any significant challengers. So you know, although contests are going, Donald Trump will be the Republican Party nominee to contest the White House. All the action this time round is in the Democratic Party. And as we know, we started with, you know, double digit number of candidates um, back last summer. And now we are down to pretty much just four people left on the ballot paper. Super Tuesday is important because of all the delegates that a person needs to be declared the Democratic nominee, about one third of them were up for grabs yesterday. Now, what does that mean? It means voters all across the nation are voting to decide who will represent them, who will go head to head. In different states, and this is where it gets a bit complicated, in different states, only registered members of the Democratic Party can take part in the primary contest. In other states, any voter at all can take part. So you could have Republicans, Democrats, independents, unregistered, all voting together. Super Tuesday gives a real 
really good indication, though, of who that final person is going to be, because so many votes are up for grabs. So many of those delegates who will ultimately go on to the convention this year, it's in July, and vote for the candidate. So all in all, there are 3,979 delegates up for grabs right across the US. 1,357 of them were up for grabs yesterday. And the magic number that anyone needs to get to is 1,991. So that's kind of where the maths comes into it. So the predictions had been that some person in particular, in this case, Bernie Sanders, would do really, really well yesterday and would be heading for that 1,991 and would be the contest would all essentially be over. But as we know now, that's not what happened. So perfect timing, Ronan. Mm. Tell us what has happened um, on Super Tuesday 2020. Yeah, like as Katrina pointed out there, Super Tuesday is huge because of the number of delegates that are up for grabs. Um, over a third of the delegates. Um, but there were 14 states um, voting, 14 states and the American Territory of American Samoa. We might mention that later. But 14 states all across the country. So in some ways, it's the first day where we have a bit of a nationwide poll of how things are. And among those 14 states, um, Joe Biden, we think, has won nine of the states. So that's an extremely strong result for him. Um, he won states like Virginia, North Carolina, Alabama, Oklahoma, Oklahoma, Tennessee, and even one Minnesota and Texas where Sanders had been polling um, quite strongly and, and ahead in the last the last few weeks. So it, it's shown how it's been a really good night uh, overall for, for Joe Biden. Um, was that the expectation? Like where were, where were we expecting to be at? Um, if you were to say two weeks ago, you'd say no. Um, Joe Biden was, people were saying his campaign was on life support. He wasn't, he was running out of money, but he, he stuck a lot of emphasis on winning in South Carolina. Um, and that state has a lot of uh, black Democratic voters and that's where a lot of his coalition um, comes in. And it, it won out for him. He won by, I think it was about a 20 point win he had in South Carolina there um, over the weekend. So that really... Um, it shot forward his campaign and he got, we saw Pete Buttigieg, who was the early front runner on the moderate side of the Democrats, uh, drop out, which was a big surprise to me. He dropped out and he supported Joe Biden. And Amy Klobuchar also dropped out and supported Joe Biden. So over the past few days, we've seen a lot of what you might consider, you know, centrist Democrats, establishment Democrats rallying around Joe Biden. And it's it's come out in the in the vote as well. And he's, he's won the United States. And what about the other kind of big names, Warren and Bloomberg? Yeah, it wasn't a complete um, shutout in that Bernie Sanders um, won, I think, four or five of the states that we that we have. He won in Vermont, which is where he's a senator. He won in Colorado and Utah. And crucially, it looks like he's won, in, well, he will, he will win in California. Now, that's going to take a long time to count. But California has 414 delegates alone as a state. That's about 10% of all delegates. So the question... Um, Democrats and America's asking today is exactly how many of those delegates is he going to get and who will be a lead after their who will be in the overall delegate lead after their divvy doubt so uh, you mentioned there Bloomberg and, and Warren they didn't have a good night uh, neither of them won any states and Bloomberg just won that American Samoa territory <laughs> uh, Tell us about American Samoa since we're there It's a Pacific island it's part of American territory and it's 
uh, showed results that were not in line with anywhere else in America. That's why Bloomberg has won there. And um, Bloomberg's plan, essentially, because um, this is the first time he's actually been on the ballot um, in this Democratic race, he spent, if people might know him, he's a former mayor of New York. Um, I think the latest estimate is that he spent about $600 million on this current campaign that's buying up TV ads all across the country and, you might argue, buying a lot of goodwill, shall we say, among Democratic supporters. Um, but crucially, I think that was... It was also based on the fact that um, if we didn't get to this point, if we got to this point where there wasn't an overwhelming front runner, Bloomberg felt maybe I can swoop in and you know take Super Tuesday. But because of Biden's run over the last week, um, it just hasn't panned out for him that way. Katrina, can we go back to California there? Uh, Ronan kind of touched that we don't have results and we won't have results for a while, correct? Yeah, so California, as Ronan said, is about 10% of all the delegates up for grabs. But of that, a huge number of them are postal votes. So as long as you put your postal vote in the mail with yesterday's um, date mark on it, that counts. So those votes will have to wait for them to arrive essentially through the mail and be counted. So it could be up to a week before we have really a final result out of California. And the other thing to note is that it's not winner takes all. Mm. So, you know, if it turns out that Sanders gets the most votes in California, which is what it looks like right now, and he definitely would stand to benefit from those postal votes as well, he won't take all 415 of those. It's proportionally appointed. So if you get to 15% of the overall vote in a state, then it's allocated proportionally. If you get 3% or something, you're essentially discounted. So that's why it's it's still really interesting and really important as to what happens in California, particularly because you still have Klobuchar in the race, Bloomberg in the race, and those people who mailed in their votes still would have been voting on Klobuchar and Buttigieg as well. So Though it could, if if this race stays tight, which is now how it looks after last night between Sanders and Biden, the margins in California could be really, really important if it comes down to kind of 10, 20, 30 delegates in the difference. Yes, yeah. And, and I think why it's confusing is I think a lot of people might be familiar with, you know, the US presidential election where it is winner take all when it comes to electoral college. Um, you win a state, you get a hold of votes. That's not how it works in this case. And that's why it's, it's confusing. And as Katrina, point out it's kind of proportion of the percentage votes you get but I think very often Super Tuesday is not just about the delegates it's also about the media coverage you get and that's American um, political races are are driven by you know the coverage and the headlines you get and that's why we can see that even if at the end of today when the votes are counted that it's close Joe Biden has got a big win because he's getting all the plaudits and he's getting all the coverage after his after his results And is there any state that's particularly important not just because of the numbers but what it says you know the way they say that about Iowa or they say about Florida in the when it comes to the actual election what yeah. is there a state in Super Tuesday that's the one that people really want to take Yeah so while California is important for the delegates it's not really important in the grand scheme of things for a November election because California votes Democrats so who Whoever the nominee is will get all the votes there, you'd assume, come November, short of something very dramatic happening. But it's what's important to look at is what happened last night in somewhere like Virginia, which will be a swing state, uh, always is a swing state come the actual general election where Joe Biden did very well, where there was a really big turnout as well, which was anticipated to benefit Bernie Sanders. You know, there's a kind of movement behind Bernie Sanders, feel the burn. He has all the young people, all of that. So much of the discussion was if the turnout's big, that's going to benefit Bernie Sanders. The turnout was big in Virginia, also in Texas, and it it benefited Joe Biden. So 
they're really important states. Minnesota, a really important state as well. Those that kind of Midwest region, which if we look back to 2016, was essentially where the White House was won for Donald Trump. Um, he did really well in those kind of Midwestern states, you know, particularly Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin. They were the states that put him over the line and got him into the White House. So if you're looking ahead and, you know, for the Democratic Party, their eyes have to be on the bigger prize here, which for them is taking back the White House and potentially um, you know, having great success down ballot races in November in the uh, third of Senate seats that will be up for grabs in the congressional seats that will be uh, going to the polls as well. And governors, school boards right the way down, they're looking for a momentum. They're looking for the power to be restored to them fully come November. So they want, so if you're a Democrat, you want your candidate in November to have won the primaries in some of these swing states. Exactly, exactly. Um, and you want there to be, I, I mean, Ronan's talking there about kind of momentum. Um, you know, that's really important at this point in time. And if we look at some of the exit polls from yesterday, for example, a whole pile of people said they only made up their minds in the last couple of days. That's when they were looking at Joe Biden winning South Carolina. People like to vote for a winner. They like to be in the winning team. So they would have seen that. Uh, again, the media coverage that he would have got as, as the guy winning rather than the kind of also-ran guy that he was this time last week. Um, I mean, he's even come up with his own hashtag now, Joe Mentum, um, <laughs> you know, and, and that's propelling him forward. And that's really important as well um, because... I mean, the, the election season, if you like, in the US is so long. I mean, for us here, you know, it's three and a half, four weeks and, and that can be enough. withering <laughs> at times. Yeah. So, you know, um, people who are voting have to think now over these few months, depending on what state they're in. OK, what candidate do I want to pick for, to pick, to, to vote for? And they'll do that. And then they nearly forget about it till it gets to the autumn when you're into that two horse race type scenario. And then they re-engage again. And, you know, they want to think, oh, well, I picked the winner back then, I'll, I'll vote for them again. Or they did very, very well um, in these important Midwestern or other swing states like we'll see Florida come up in a couple of weeks as well. I mean, and Katrina mentioned the exit poll there. I think another thing I, I saw when the exit polls this morning was that um, only 13% of voters uh, were aged 18 to 29. So that's a very small number of young voters. And perhaps, you know, we talk about Ukraine on this side of, of the Atlantic, it's an opposite what happened there. And, you know, the youth is at where Bernie Sanders' support is very, very strong. And if that hasn't turned out, well, that's not going to look very good for the rest of the Democratic Party. He said, hold on, you know, Bernie, you promised us that if we back you, we're going to get this surge of support among young people. If that hasn't developed, that doesn't look good for him for the rest of, of the race going forward. And also, as Katrina mentioned, you know, you have Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan. If the Democrats flip those three states and keep all the other states they won in 2016, they win the presidency. And Joe Biden is from Pennsylvania. And it's very one, very much one of those states that people talk about Ohio as, you know, being a bellwether state. And um, that's in a state where it's overall um, a Republican state. But if a, Repub if a Democrat wins it, it's kind of suggestive that that's where the country's going. Pennsylvania is kind of interesting and in that it's the opposite because it's a Democratic state. But Trump won it last time. So if you flip it the opposite way, it, it's looking good for the Democrats, perhaps. What does the rest of this race look like? I think we put so much emphasis on Super Tuesday as if like, oh, it's done now, but it's not. No, it's far from, from done, particularly uh, given what we saw last night. So, I mean, where to next? There's six states have their primaries next week. Um, then there's the next Democratic debate on Sunday week, more states on St. Patrick's Day. What's important next week to look out for is Michigan. Um, again, one of those states, a swing state that Donald Trump won um, that put him into the White House. 
There are 125 delegates up for grabs there. So again, quite a a big, sizable state. And it'll test the candidates' appeal with suburbanites, uh, working class white voters and African-Americans again. So again, whether it's um, Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, if Elizabeth Warren and Mike Bloomberg stay on the ticket, it will be really important for the Democratic Party themselves to see which candidate is polling well with those voters that they're really, really going to need come November. Um, then if we if we look ahead to St. Patrick's Day, there's a number of states going to the polls that day. Crucially, Florida, always a big swing state. And in this case, 219 delegates up for grabs. So again, a really big number available there to one of the candidates. Illinois, 155 delegates and Ohio, 136 delegates. Now, if if one of the candidates manages to take Florida, Illinois and Ohio and Arizona, I think is up on that day as well. If one of them takes all of that, uh, the mats are looking excellent, but also the momentum, again, we come back to that word, it will be behind that candidate and it'll be really difficult for the unsuccessful person to stay in the race. Again, the Democratic Party have their eyes on the big prize here. That is more important to them than, you know, the personalities as such. And I think, again, given that we've seen so many people saying they're only deciding, making their minds up in the last few days based on electability, based for those members of the Democratic Party who want to take back the White House, who want to beat Donald Trump, they're looking less at policies now this time around and you know that might seem a bit of an odd thing to do when you're voting for somebody who's going to be president of your country you want to know that their views their values their ideology is in line with yours but in this case democrats are so anti-Donald Trump, to put it politely, that they are really looking for how can we win? Who is going to do this? They don't want to destroy their party with a vicious democratic primary that goes right down to the wire and has, you know, very bad feeling like we, we saw in 2016 between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. They will want unity. They'll want to be hitting the racetrack essentially as early in the summer as they can so that they can try and get whatever kind of bounce they can on Donald Trump, who you know, is looking good for re-election at this point. How early can it be that we are decided and we know the candidate? Um, I would say end of April, probably at this point in time. Again, it depends who takes a lot of those um, big states that I mentioned, like Florida and so on. But the end of April, you have New York, 274 delegates, another big state. Pennsylvania, 186, another big state. So by the end of April, at the latest, I would think we will know the who is number. going, yeah, who's who's at that number or who's, is so close to it that the other person just really has to step back. The nightmare scenario uh, for the Democrats is that um, the, the convention is in July, it's in Milwaukee, and the nightmare scenario is that they get to that point where no one has got that 1991 delegate number that Katrina mentioned, so no one has a majority. And the big word of what we're talking about now is plurality. That's the word you might hear over the next few months. And that is going to suggest where a candidate has the most number of delegates but doesn't actually have a majority. And the question will be, if a candidate has that plurality, should they be the assumed victor of the primary process? And a lot of Democrats will say, well, yeah, they got the most votes. But there are 700-odd of these superdelegates. They're essentially party elders who can cast their vote whichever way they feel like it at the convention. And kind of the, the feeling is that they might err towards Joe Biden. So we, we, we have to see if that plays out. And that convention is when the whole decision is signed, sealed, delivered. That's when they actually make their vote and decide who their candidate is going to be. And 
both parties, all parties want to be very, they don't want to be divided at that point. They want the convention to be a coronation of, look at this person who's our, who's our choice, who's, who's heading for the White House. You know, we saw four years ago at the Republican convention, it was in Cleveland, Ohio, um, there wasn't that kind of, there wasn't, there was division at the convention. We saw Ted Cruz get up and he wouldn't endorse um, Donald Trump on stage, promoted booze from from the auditorium. That's something the Democrats don't want to happen. It's That's a really interesting point. So obviously I was at the Republican convention and the Democratic convention in 2016 and um, the Democratic convention was not a unity convention mm. either. I mean, Hillary Clinton had huge number of delegates. She had all of those super delegates that Ronan's mm. just mentioned there. But there was a really bad taste left in the mouth of the Bernie Sanders voters because it was the superdelegates that got her over the line, essentially. And at the Democratic convention, you had people wearing Bernie Sanders masks, uh, wearing T-shirts with slogans like, you know, Bernie was robbed and she's not the legitimate candidate and, you know, all of this. And that's within their own party. And how Uh, much does that feed into the narrative of mm. what we heard from the Trump camp? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, Hillary Clinton would say, and she's not wrong here, that a one of the fact, I mean, many factors caused her to lose. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, there's an excellent book you can buy. Like, <laughs> um, <laughs> written by my good self. But anyway, um, she would, and she's been doing interviews actually in the last uh, just couple of days and weeks about this because she's got a new Hulu TV documentary series out. But she actually levels a lot of the blame at Bernie Sanders because although after the convention he endorsed her, which is the kind of mannerly and polite thing to do, he didn't actually go out and campaign for her until just the last couple of weeks he didn't call upon all of the Bernie supporters to back her until the last couple of weeks and and then even in a kind of half-hearted sort of way so there were a whole pile of Democrats who sat home in 2016 and did not vote for Hillary Clinton and as one senior Democrat um, put it to me who'd worked in the Obama White House put it to me the Christmas after the election was the Republican Party were able to hold their nose and vote for Donald Trump the Democratic Party were not able to hold their nose and vote for Hillary Clinton. They will not want a rerun of that. And the danger here is that if we come down to superdelegates, now, again, just getting probably a bit Mm. too technical here, the rules have changed. So those superdelegates that Hillary Clinton was able to bank ahead of time the last time, the governors, the mayors, the members of Congress, the senators and so on, who were Clinton loyalists, she had them in the bag early on. Though this time around, the superdelegates are not allowed to vote until they get to the convention or declare their intention. So that kind of pull sway factor is not there in the way that it was in 2016. But what they won't want is a scenario where the Bernie Sanders voters again feel that they've been robbed. If it comes down to Biden and Sanders and it comes down to being really, really tight and it comes down to the brokered convention scenario that Ronan's talking about where you go in where neither of them has a majority and there's all this backroom negotiating about please vote for us and whatever. You don't want a scenario where the Bernie Sanders voters, and there are a lot of them, and it's a very sizable group within the party, feel that they're going to sit the race out again. The Democratic Party cannot afford to have that happen. I mean, the bigger question for the Democratic Party and for the kind of hierarchy of it is, how did they get to this scenario? How, after 2016, when they were all feeling so bruised and battered and their candidate, you know, the two candidates, Trump and Clinton, the most disliked of any candidates ever to run for the presidency in the United States, how did that happen to the Democratic Party that four years on, or almost four years on, 
they, you know, their contest has come down to two men in their 70s, white men in their 70s, not to be ageist or anything mm-hmm. like that. But uh, much of the talk was about bringing along the next generation, future proofing the party, giving it a bit of diversity. We had all of those candidates getting into the race early on. You know, we had women, we had um different races, different, you know, a whole range reflecting the body of America, reflecting the population. And yet they're down in this scenario now where there are two white men in their 70s running potentially to run against another white man in his 70s. And they still might be fighting at their convention. Exactly. <laughs> Is it easy to join either of the parties in America? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can. there are a number of ways of doing it, but even when you're filling out to renew your driver's license, you can tick whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or an independent, um, and you go on a register, essentially. So, it, again, it's different to here. I mean, we, we keep these things very secretive and very private, mm. and we don't tell anyone who, um, well, obviously journalists don't anyway, but, you know, even other people, um, you don't tell anyone often that you're a member of a particular party. But there you do, you're registered, you're on a list, you can chop and change. Many people chop and change um, throughout their lives, in fact. And, you know, a big part of um, how Donald Trump did well in those swing states that we were mentioning was that a lot of Democrats, registered Democrats, went in on the ballot today in November 2016 and voted for Donald Trump, even though their card essentially said Democrat. And that benefited him massively. And that's what the Democratic Party don't want to see happen again. Um, You know, but at this point in time, um, the thing is a mess, really, from the Democratic Party perspective. And Donald Trump is looking very, very strong there uh, and, and, you know, looking good towards the election day. Would you agree, Ronan? Um, We're asking for predictions. A bit of a, a bit of a diversion from the usual explainer. But I suppose it's the literal multi-billion-dollar question. Um, I suppose at present the bookies don't seem to think the Democrats uh, will win. If you put a tenner on Trump getting re-elected, you'll get about sixteen euro back, whereas you'll get about twenty-three euro back with the Democrats. So that kind of shows you how Trump is seen as the favourite. And um, we've kind of outlined how there are ways the Democrats can win if they win certain states, and it's definitely there for them. But at the moment, you know, Trump has the power of incumbency. It's a very strong. Uh, position to be in American politics and as a relatively strong economy too. He also recently um, um, was acquitted in the Senate in that impeachment process as well. So he has certain, he's looking more secure than he was perhaps even six months ago, but uh, we don't know what's going to happen in the next six or seven months. Larry, if you are Donald Trump waking up after Super Tuesday, what are you thinking? Uh, look, I'd say there's, you know, it's very hard to get inside Donald Trump's mind. God knows what he's thinking. But uh, in the one sense, I, I think uh, he took some personal satisfaction. He really detests Mike Bloomberg. I think he took some personal satisfaction from Bloomberg's poor showing. Um, but on the uh, on the other hand, uh, I think probably Joe, uh, Donald Trump would have preferred uh, if Bernie Sanders were the nominee. And to the extent that Super Tuesday makes Bernie Sanders less likely to be the nominee, uh, if I were Donald Trump or if I were on his team, uh, I'd be slightly disappointed about that. Uh, however, uh, look, he will go after Joe Biden. Uh, we already see the sleepy Joe tag, et cetera. Uh, but I think he has more to fear uh, from a Biden candidacy than he would from a Sanders candidacy. Uh, and that's because uh, those very voters in middle America uh, who Trump managed to capture last time, uh, I think that they would be more likely to drift to Joe, to Joe Biden, particularly if the economy goes south, uh, than they would be to Bernie Sanders. Has he said anything about this democratic race yet? Uh, He's made an awful lot of comments. I mean, all of them negative. 
some of them really ridiculing Elizabeth Warren uh, and Bernie Sanders, uh, as well as Joe Biden. But I think that this is masking uh, some kind of tr- some bit of trepidation uh, about Biden. Uh, I think despite all of Biden's flaws, which I think are manifest, uh, I think the re- there's a reason why Democrats have rallied around him uh, as the most electable. He probably is the person who could put it up to Trump. But again, uh, there's a long way to go. And people have speculated both about uh, how Biden would fare in a debate against Trump. Uh, and there's also the issue of his son in the Ukraine. And that might come back into play as well uh, as we get closer to November, if in the event that Biden is a nominee. And Larry, if we asked you to predict what would happen in November, what would you say? Well, I tried to make my New Year's resolution that I was going to give up on making political predictions. But if you put a proverbial gun to my head, uh, I'd probably say that Donald Trump would win. Uh, the reason being, uh, and this is there's a lot of caveats here, uh, some of the reasons being that uh, the presidency itself confers a tremendous advantage on the incumbent. Uh, most presidents do, or the majority of presidents do get a second term. Uh, the economy has been going uh, reasonably well. Um, he also, again, one of the things often overlooked, he also uh, has made significant inroads uh, with Latinos and, and doesn't do as badly with them as you might think, concerning the things he said about immigration and otherwise. And lastly, uh, his base, his core uh, is absolutely fired up and they're going to stick with him uh, through thick and thin and go out and vote uh, for Donald Trump. So he, he's got all of that going for him. But I think we need to remember the important thing here is that um, at the end of the day, last time around, he had everything going for him and he just barely snuck it uh, against a candidate who was quite unpopular. Katrina, do you want to give us the names of your two books? Oh, I will. No problem. <laughs> Go first. Uh, so my most recent book is Tribe, the inside story of Irish power and influence in US politics. And that's all about the Irish Americans who are really powerful in the White House, Capitol Hill and right the way through the US. And then my first book is called In America, Tales from Trump Country. And that explains a lot of what we've been talking about there, actually, which is sort of how Donald Trump got to the White House and those Midwestern states that were important in 2016 and will be important again in 2020. So a perfect timing to find it in any good bookstore, I presume. Thank you very much, Ronan, Katrina and Larry. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Ronan, Katrina and Larry for their time and work on this episode. And thank you also to Aoife and Nikki for presenting over the last couple of weeks while I was away. If you enjoyed this chat and learned something, we have loads more for you. Check out our back catalogue where you'll find loads on the coronavirus and a lot more too. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by executive producer Christine Bowen, producer Aoife Barry and assistant producer and tech operator Nikki Ryan. If you're enjoying these episodes, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And more importantly, share with a friend who you think will enjoy them as well. Thank you and catch you next time.